0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. All right. Well, good to see you this morning, church family. Those gathered with us, those online, glad you're here. How about it for our power all-girls supercharged worship team this morning, man? Leading us in, grateful Scarlet, one of our uh, interns here at Northway, and Josh instead this morning, and it also happens to be her birthday. So happy birthday, Scarlett. Grateful for you leading us, church family. As we dive in this morning, I'd love, before we get into the word, just to, to ask maybe that you would join with me in prayer. I know this has been uh, another hard week in our country for many in the af- aftermath of the uh, Dante Wright shooting, I think um, the shooting in Chicago, the protests back on the street again. And I know for many, specifically our African American brothers and sisters, including members of this church that I have spent time with and spoken with, that is. Just events like this just continue to reopen wounds and uh, concerning experiences of racial partiality, of injustices that are present and painful in our community. And uh, I could say the same for our Asian brothers and sisters who've experienced an uptick in that as well in our country. And uh, and at the same time, I can also tell you that I've spoken with members of our church who are also in law enforcement, police officers, good and godly men and women who felt a tremendous amount of fear uh, reignited this week as well um, in backlash and reprisals and certainly with the ambush in Burleson as well just triggers those things. And I just want to acknowledge that the, the pain that is felt by many in our body and community, that's not just an out there pain, it's not just a CNN thing, it's not just a social media thing, like it's a real and present pain of members in our church, and uh, I just want to both affirm your tears and your cries for change, that they are seen and they are shared. And at the same time, you need to know that's not a political statement. That is not um, endorsing an ideology that runs counter to the Scriptures. That is just Christians weeping with those who weep, just hurting with those who hurt. And if indeed we are one body, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us we are in Jesus Christ, then when something affects one of us, it should matter to all of us as one body. And so with that in mind, I'd love for us to pray, call upon the Lord for his intercession, um, and call upon his healing, and uh, that he would continue to uh, use this church as that city within a city, that our culture around us could see the true living presence of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us, Uh, causing our city, our community around us to encounter the truth, the goodness, and the beauty that is found in Jesus, that is a counter-narrative to the the narrative of the world around us. So would you join me in prayer this morning, and then we're going to dive in and rest in this text the Lord has for us. Father, we just come before you recognizing in this ever-present Romans 8 reality around us where we have a broken and fallen world that has been marred by sin with a creation and a humanity that is groaning for our day of redemption. It is just evidence that something is not as it should be in the world around us. And uh, Father, I know with that comes great hurt and pain from many who are directly uh, affected in ways that others of us aren't. And I pray, God, that you would just give us deep empathy as you have, that we would care for one another in this body, that we would be uh, slow to speak, quick to listen, and God, quick to really intercede for one another. Help us avoid just the divisive rhetoric that is so rampant in our culture right now. And God, that we could, as as your redeemed ones, God, that we could care about what you care about in this world, whether it's the racial partialities and injustices around us, whether it's just the, the hurt that runs deep, God, that we we ourselves could enter into that with our brothers and sisters, and we could care for one another, that we could speak truth, but we could do so with compassion. And, oh God, we long for Christ's return, the day when all wrongs will be made right. In the meantime, God, through the power of our risen Christ, would you help Northway Church to be a city within a city, to be a testimony within a testimony, that, God, we, we could experience a better community, a better justice, Um, a better love and a better unity that is found preserved in Jesus Christ right here with us than what the world is offering. Help us to be courageous in that. And God, would uh, would you again just send your ministering grace through the power of your Holy Spirit to comfort those who are hurting today. And so, God, we need you. And I pray this text we're about to enter into, God, would be just a source of joy for us, a source of rest for us, in the midst of a very unstable world, that we could experience a stable God who has not changed and will never change and will be our continued source of refuge. For your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Church, if you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And um, we have been sitting for several weeks in a significant portion of romans uh, addressing the sovereignty of god in salvation and uh, specifically how god in his mercy in eternity past has chosen to save some while also passing over others this is unavoidable it is in the scripture and we have we're wrestling with it and uh, asking the hard questions and paul Uh, Like a good teacher, a good father anticipates the question of his students, his children. And uh, we dealt with the first question at the beginning of Romans 9, is God unfaithful in his sovereign election? And uh, in other words, Paul's thinking of the Jew around him going, if God has chosen who will be saved... Uh, through Jesus Christ, what seems like God's own people, the Jewish people, have rejected Jesus. So is God unfaithful to his promises? Didn't he say that he would save every Jew? And Paul says, no, not at all. God never promised that because God's promise was never predicated upon just being a physical Jew of a genealogical birthright or a physical lineage. That's not what God's choice is predicated upon. It is predicated upon a spiritual people, those who would put their faith in Jesus' Christ. And so, no, God is not unfaithful to his promises. Last week, we dealt with the question, well, is he unjust? Is it an unjust of God? Is there an injustice that happens by God not saving all, rather just saving some? And Paul once again goes, no, this is not a question of justice. If salvation was a question of justice, we would all be separated from God, eternally condemned, with no hope. It is a matter of mercy, that God would even step in and save one, let alone a myriad of believers in Jesus Christ. It is an, it is a, an issue of God's mercy, not justice. And now, this week, as we close out this long stretch of Romans 9, starting in verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter, we're going to look at the, really the next question of, is it unfair? Is God's sovereign choice unfair? And really, it's the same question as last week of injustice. The only difference is, is last week's objection was rooted more in the judicial, where this question will be rooted more in the emotional. And I want you to see if you can sense the tension of the question that it's being addressed, starting in verse 19, and see if you've ever asked this question as well, because I know I have, over and over. He says in verse 19, so in light of this idea of sovereign election, this this salvific choice based on mercy, you will say to me then, and here's the question, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God is the one who chooses salvation, how can he blame us if we never had a choice in the matter? Like, How can you, actually, how can you find fault in someone who never had a choice to begin with? Isn't that what you're saying, Paul? That seems totally unfair for God to condemn someone who never had a chance to begin with? And again, that's a, that's a question. I remember 15 years old, had just come to faith in Jesus, just been handed a Bible, working my way through it, stumbling my way through it, and I get to Romans 9, and I see that question there, and I'm like, "That is a, this guy's reading my mail. That's the exact question I have. What's up with that, God. And I'm mad, truthfully, I'm mad at God, and, 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 and I even got a little bit worse when I read his response in verse 20. Listen to this response. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? And again, when I first read that, I was mad at that answer because here's the deal. As we've seen in the book of Romans, every time Paul addresses a question, his his answer to that question almost always leads to a highway of helpful understanding. He anticipates the question, answers it, goes to a deeper, helpful highway of understanding, and yet this question seems to dead end in a cul-de-sac of frustration, of just, shh, quit asking questions. No, I'm not done asking questions, God. Don't shush me right now. I've got questions. You need to answer them. And, and here's the deal. There is a tension that is here, and we cannot dodge this tension. But, but over the years, what I want you to know, as I have wrestled with this question, as I assume maybe many of you in this room has, I have actually gleaned from this text and even this question and this answer, two great truths that have helped me see this as God's grace for me. Two great truths that have ministered to me greatly that I think we're going to see in this text. One is the grace of divine enigmas in the Scripture, of divine tensions. And by the way, they are everywhere in the Bible. Uh, By definition, enigma is a mystery that lies between two truthful realities that seem to contradict themselves, but in actuality, they do not. We just can't figure it out. It's like one giant Sudoku puzzle, man, just crazy right here, these tensions. But the Bible is full of these tensions that aren't easily figured out by our finite minds, such as, where did God come from? Who made God? You ever ask that question? Make your head explode right there. You get into that. I remember it was about fifth grade when that question was first posed to me. I was not a believer. My family was not. I have never asked that question. It was asked to me. I believed in a in a divine being, and I just started thinking, my goodness. The answer to that question is God has always existed. I could not get my head wrapped around, still can't, today, because why? I am a finite creation. As a finite created human being, all I've ever experienced is beginnings and ends. Everything in our culture has a beginning and an end. I simply cannot fathom a being out there who has always existed and will never end, who is eternal. That enigma, it exists outside my ability to grasp in my finite condition, but it does not mean it is no less true. It's an enigma. Think about the enigma of the sovereignty of God in evil. It's another question that we wrestle with. Most of us feel that because evil exists in the world, then it must conclude that God is either not good, meaning he's all-powerful, but he's not good because he could do something about it, but he's not. Or that God is not sovereignly powerful, meaning he wants to do something about it, he just can't. And we conclude it must be one of the other. And because of this tension, we feel like we have to pick one of the other or just dismiss God all together because we feel we've got to get God off the hook. But the truth is our job is not to get God off the hook. God is God, we are not. There is an enigma that lies out there, that God can actually be both sovereign and good, even in the midst of an evil and broken world. And those two do not contradict themselves. And God gives enough explanation to show what his ultimate game plan is, but there is an enigma in the in-between of how those two things work together. The same, we could argue, of God's sovereignty and free will. Is God sovereign over all things, or do we have a freedom of will that is there? And to be fair, we are not robots micro-programmed by God. You and I get to make choices in this life, and we are going to be held responsible to God for those choices that we make. But at the same time, biblically speaking, there is actually no such thing as total free will. And case in point are you free to choose your own birth, the date of your birth? No, you are not. Are you free to choose your skin color? You are not. Are you free to choose that you can be healed over every sickness that comes your way? You, you, you don't have that sovereign free will. Do we get to determine like how and when we're going to die ultimately and every single human being out there? No. There's, do we get to determine our eternal destiny? No. There are Aspects of our will that we have freedom in, and there's other aspects that we do not. So, there's no such thing as total free will. As long as we have this sin nature that we are a part of, our will has to be bound. And that is a mercy of God, by the way. God has given us a limited menu of options so as to not wreck our lives. Think about when God set Adam and Eve out of the garden after they had sinned, that wasn't just a penalty. That was actually a mercy, because now in these fallen bodies that are corrupt with sin, if they had stayed in the garden and had continued eating from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their fallen bodies. In many ways, death became a kindness of God, because on the other side of death can come rebirth and new bodies. But there is a limiting of their will for their own good, And so God in his mercy gives us this limited menu of options, so we won't wreck our lives with our total free will fueled by a sinful nature. That would be like giving my 11-year-old daughter car keys and saying, have at it, you've got total free will. Uh, Let me just tell you, that would not be for her good, and that dang sure wouldn't be for your good uh, to put her on the streets like that. We impose a limited will on our daughter for her own good. Now, certainly, there is an enigma somewhere between God's predetermined sovereign plan and our human responsibility. Now, the same tension, the same enigma exists right here with the sovereignty of God and salvation. God can sovereignly choose whom he will show mercy to before time even begins and at the same time still hold Humanity culpable for our sin and our rebellion, and those two things do not contradict. There is an enigma in our finite comprehension, but it doesn't mean both realities are no less true in God's infinite architectural plan. But sadly, I need you to know, because of this tension, it is why many pastors, in my experience, skip over Romans 8 and 9. I've literally seen pastors teach through Romans and skip 8 and 9. And it is also the reason, this tension, why many members want to deny the truths taught in Romans 8 and 9, and both of those are dangerous to either ignore it or deny it altogether or change the text. I agree with Michael Spiegel, prof from DTS, who says trying to relieve tension in tough passages is ultimately what gives birth to heresy when we begin doing that. Instead, we need to learn what it means to sit in the tension while at the same time submitting to the sovereignty of God. And this, though it's been difficult, has actually been a grace for me and my journey with Christ to learn to rest in some of these enigmas. Now, second grace, though, that's been helpful for me, and we're going to see this in this passage, is the grace of divine majesty and authority that is found in God alone. What Paul is going to show us here, what he is showing us here, is that God is God and you and I are not. It's not our questioning the difficult truths of the Bible that God is opposed to here. God's not shushing your questions, but rather it's putting ourselves in the position of God that God is opposed to. When we actually think that we're smarter than God, When we think that we know more than God and that our will should supersede His will and that somehow He owes us, that's what God is opposed to. Chuck Swindoll used to say over and over when he taught us at seminary, God does not answer to me any more than He has to answer to the flowers that He created. We are His creation. He is the creator, and it is not the other way around. But we need to to understand in our fallen nature, in our autonomous Western individualistic selves, we don't like this. We don't like not being in power. We don't like not being in control. Our whole culture right now is bent on telling God how we think things should run. He needs to listen to our definitions of marriage, not his. He needs to listen to our definitions of sexuality, not his. He needs to listen to our definitions of which life is more superior to another, not God's definition of non-partiality in his creation and redemption. Like, we think we're God, which, by the way, was the first lie in the Bible. And it's also the first command that was given in the Ten Commandments. You're not to have any other gods, namely yourself. That God is God and we are not. And Paul is showing us, don't, Paul is showing us here, don't do that. Though you feel a tension here, it's better to sit in that tension with God in charge than to try to ease that tension with you and I in charge. It is a good thing that God is in charge because if he wasn't, this whole world would implode on itself right now. What we see going on in the culture around us right now is just a taste of what could be if we had total free will in our sin nature. And so God shows us here that his will is best especially when it comes to salvation. Remember the call to worship passage we read at the very beginning, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. Listen to these words again as they'll bring context on Romans 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And listen to this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is sovereign election before time ever began. Did, how much choice did we have in it? We didn't exist yet, so not much. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that you and I could be holy and blameless in him. And how, why did he do this? In love. In love was his motive, that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. That's the divine enigma. There is a will that God has that you and I just can't get our minds around, but he has it nonetheless. And what we have to trust is what he says in the very next verse in Ephesians 1 that this will is for the praise of his glorious grace. It exalts God's glory with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It is for our good. God's will for God's glory for our good. God promises that, that he is good and yet he is sovereign. And if it wasn't for his sovereign intervention, we would all be condemned in our sin. But because his will is best, This great molder, this great potter, as we'll see here, has a purpose in his choosing that allowed his mercy to step in and rescue us when we did not deserve it. And he will do this in a way where only he can get the credit, only God. And you see this, starting in verse 21 again. After asking this question, God says this, or Paul tells us this about God, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. In other words, in God's master plan, God knew whom he would rescue, that he knew whom he would glorify with his mercy. And he knew who he would pass over, whom he would allow to go on to their justful condemnation, to the glory of his justice. And he says he did this, and I want you to understand the wording here, from the same lump. Taking this potter illustration, okay, this, this taking this clay and you're going to form it into this thing, he says it starts with one lump, and that is important because I think there's two misconceptions that a lot of us have when it comes to sovereign election. One is that there, it started with two lumps, that there's this lump of really bad people that we know, and there's this bump of, lump of really good people. And what God did is he sovereignly overrode the will of each one. He overrode the, the will of the bad people, and he made them good, and he overrode the will of, of the good people, and he made them bad. It's not what the Scripture is teaching here but another would say, okay, let's just go to the one lump. That one lump, we have this idea that everybody who's born is born neutral somehow. Like, ah, moral, ah, sinful. And, and he made, took this neutral lump, and he chose some for evil and some for good. That's not what the Scripture is teaching here either. The same lump is that we were all sinners, Every single one of us, Romans 3.23, have fallen short of the glory of God because of our own sin and rebellion. There was only one lump. And if God's salvation was based on justice, he would have just let that entire lump go on to hell. But instead, it was God's mercy as that lump was going in the direction it wanted to go, God took some out of that lump and said, I'm gonna use you, not for my justice, but for my mercy. And at the end of time, both will be exalted. God will remain just because he will not let the guilty go unpunished. But he also be loving and merciful and that he saves some out of his own grace. In verse 22, just as we saw last week with Pharaoh, sensing this human tension that we have with that, he changes the perspective for us so that we can see this process as God sees it, not as we see it. You see this, verse 22, what if God, consider this scenario, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, that's his justice, and to make known his power, actually has endured with much patience vessels of wrath being prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory For the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, we see God's judging the sinfulness of man and not saving everybody as some form of injustice. That's how we see it. Why didn't you save everybody, God? That's unjust. But no, God sees it differently. With an entire lump of humanity that is rebellious and sinful towards him, God actually patiently endures humanity's rebellion so as in time to save the fullness of his elect for his glory. Again, if it were up to God's justice, humanity would just be incinerated upon our first sin. But part of God's predetermined plan actually included patiently holding off his justice so that he could allow Harden sinful human beings to take their shape and show their hand, thus dignifying his justice, but at the same time allowing his mercy to melt some of those and bring them to salvation. It was everything that we looked at last week with Pharaoh. Let me just say this. When you reframe it to a lens of patience, let me ask this question. How many of you brand new Christians in here that have recently come to faith in Jesus How many of you are thankful that God didn't send Jesus to judge the earth five or 10 years ago? How many of y'all would have been absolutely hosed? Do you know why? Because God is patient, giving time. While at the same time, the more grace and mercy pours out is hardening others, but it actually gave room for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is God's patience. In doing so, God intervenes through patience to fit the elect for the riches of his glory. And for the non elect, he simply lets them harden in the direction they have already decided to go. In verse 24, speaking of vessels of mercy, by the way, notice who they're made up of. Who are we talking about, these vessels of mercy? Even us, whom he has called. Not from the Jews only. Oh, but from the Gentiles. Oh yes, even us. You think God's plan doesn't work to save and redeem? Just look around this room at the vessels of mercy that are all around us. Not just a room full of Jews, but Gentiles, whom by God's mercy has brought forth in salvation. God can save anybody of his choosing. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that. And here's the deal. In verse 25 through 29, this is not only a reality that we see in this room, this was actually foretold. Long ago, God called this shot before he even took it, as said through the prophets. And he's going to quote two prophets right here at the end of Romans 9 one from Hosea and one from Isaiah. And this is important. If you remember, the, the, uh, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, was divided in two kingdoms. The northern part of Israel was, was called Israel and uh, would, would be taken out by the Assyrians. And the southern part was Judah that would eventually be taken out by the Babylonians. God uses Hosea to preach to the northern kingdom about their coming judgment. And he also sends Isaiah to the southern kingdom to preach about their coming judgment. Both regions of God's people were conquered because of their sin and because of their idolatry. And yet, God promised through these prophets that even though it seems like sin would just take everybody out, and justly so, God's mercy would actually save a remnant of them to be redeemed and restored. And God promised this would happen. Listen to Hosea's words in 25 and 26. Those who were not my people, that is what Israel was when they were not acting like God's people and they were rebelling against God and idolatry. Those who are not my people, I'm actually going to make them my people. And her who is not beloved, oh, there's a day when I'm going to call her beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, oh, there, one day, they will be called sons of the living God. So those, in other words, those who are not God's people, they're going to be made his. Is God in the habit of taking his enemies and making them into children of God? Yes, he is. Was God obligated to save every single Jew who had rebelled against him, worshipped another idol, exchanged God for a lie, and went off into captivity? Was God obligated to save every one of them? No, he was not. Listen to Isaiah, verses 27 and following. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, and that was the promise made, To Abraham, that his physical descendants would be like sands on the seashore, stars in the sky. Yet the truth is, only a remnant of them are actually going to be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In God's own timing, he will save whom he's going to save, and he will harden whom he's going to harden. In his own timing. So does Isaiah say that all Jews would be saved? No, he does not. He says only a remnant of them will go into his kingdom. Is God just in saving only a small remnant of Jews rather than all of them, and instead allowing all the rest, the idolaters and the rebels, to go on and receive the due penalty of their sin? Isaiah says in verse 29, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant, an offspring, then we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Isaiah says, Not only is God just if he chose not to save any of them, the truth is, if God hadn't acted in mercy, if he hadn't acted in mercy towards some, nobody would be saved. Everyone would be wiped off the face of this earth, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And Paul said earlier, God's mercy was not only available for those Jews. It was actually because of Israel's rejection that became the mercy of God to go and graft in a bunch of Gentiles like you and I as well. And you see that in his conclusion in verses 30 to 31. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But yet Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness actually did not succeed in reaching that law. In in other words, do you see what he's saying here? Wicked Gentiles, Paul, is this what you're saying? Wicked Gentiles who did nothing to earn or deserve God's righteousness, who rather just trusted by faith in Jesus, they're going to be saved. And yet the vast majority of Jews out there who are working to try to fulfill the law, to obey God's law apart from Jesus, to earn their own righteousness by their own works, they're not gonna be saved? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Paul says, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because at the end of the day, what was the law meant to do? Was the law of God, was the Ten Commandments meant so that you would look at them and go, huh, I can do that? Nailed it, never killed anybody. Never never rebelled against my parents, just kidding. Just never did anything, and all of a sudden, now I've earned the favor of God. No, the point of the law is that you would look upon it and go, not only can I not do that, I've already broken every one of those. I'm host. I need somebody who can fulfill this law for me and somebody who can take the penalty that I deserve for not doing this law. That is Jesus Christ. That is the point of the law, was to drive you to faith in the true righteous one who lived on our behalf and died in our place, Jesus Christ. That was the point of the law. And therefore, therefore, the Jews, by and large, have rejected Christ. That's what Paul's feeling in this text. You and I, when we're thinking about the non-elect, we're thinking about our family members, our co-workers, our friends. Paul, as he's writing this, is thinking of all his Jewish kinsmen going, how have all these people whom God worked through to bring about Jesus are the very ones who have rejected Jesus? How is this possible? Why? Why have they not done this? Because in verse 32, because they did not pursue the law by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold. I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, they rejected the gift of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and they traded it out so that they could try to pursue a righteousness that comes by their own works, which we've already seen in Romans 2. That is no righteousness at all. Therefore, one people, this is the whole point of Romans 9 here, therefore, one people who did not deserve salvation but trusted in God's provision in Jesus Christ will be used as vessels of mercy. While there is another group who has rejected God's provision in Jesus Christ because they thought they could earn it on their own, they will be used as vessels of God's justice. In other words, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same stone that is Jesus that the original builders have rejected would also become the cornerstone of a new building called the church, a diverse group of redeemed people, both Jews and Gentiles, whom God has chosen to be examples of his mercy to save. Y'all... This is actually good news for us in that God knows who his elect are even when we don't. There are some people around us whom we think God can never save. There's just no way, their heart is so hardened. But indeed, God has already actually chosen to save them. And in time, as he patiently endures their rebellion right now, eventually he will melt their hardened hearts And bring them to faith, just like he did for you and I. Case in point, by the way, the guy who's penning this chapter, the Apostle Paul, who was once a rebel and enemy of God, who thought he was serving God, but he's actually an enemy of God, who even when he got converted, his own people couldn't really believe it was true. (laughs) This guy was so far off, and yet God saved him and redeemed him. And Paul never gets over this salvation why he's always talking about the mercy of God, because it's not abstract. It's not theory. It's real. It's experiential. He's tasted it. The sovereign will of God at work to save and redeem. And because God's choice doesn't work like ours would if we were in charge, there will actually be people in heaven that you would have never expected to be there simply because of the sheer mercy of God. And consequently, there would be people that humanly you would think would be in heaven who won't because they have rejected God's grace in Jesus Christ. Here's the point of Romans chapter 9, y'all. It is God's sovereign prerogative to save whom he will, to save a sinful humanity, whomever he wills. Those whom he chooses not to save are simply given over to a heart that has already chosen to cast God aside. Those whom he does save, they will be saved on mercy alone. But rest assured, once you are saved by his mercy, he can never lose you because he chose you before the foundations of the earth were even laid. Nothing can separate you from his love or thwart his plan to redeem. This is the security of God that is for us, we are meant to see this in this passage. Now, are there still some unanswered questions? Absolutely, there are. What about those of us, those around us who've yet to put their trust in Jesus? Again, for Paul, it's the rest of the Jews around him. For us, it's non-believers that we know, is God done with them? How might they be saved? Does the doctrine of predestination mean that we don't need to evangelize anymore? Doesn't that come with this, right? As some have said, I'm going to ask you to hold on. All that is coming in chapter 10. Paul anticipates those questions. We're going to keep dealing with them. And what I'm going to do, by the way, this week, y'all, in our our church uh, weekly uh, email, if you aren't signed up for that, please go on our website, sign up for that. I'm going to send more resources than you can possibly even get your head around, walking through some of these complex issues with men and women that have done greater work on this than I could ever have dreamed of, that have been a, a grace for me. I'm going to send that out this week. But in the meantime, Here's what I want you to see again. What should predestination mean for us in this room who have been saved by Jesus? I'm speaking to believers in Jesus Christ right now. What should this doctrine mean for you? Can I just give you five quick things? Number one, a right reading of this text should make God big and you small. It should exalt, it should exalt God and humble us. Who are we, O oh men and women? that God should be mindful of us, and yet he is. It should make him glorious. Second, it should show us how loving he is, that he would extend his mercy to a group of undeserving people such as you and I, to a humanity that does not deserve his rescue, and yet he gave it anyways. He is a God of love. Third thing that I would see and say for us is this should allow us to rest because he is good and in control and is working all things out, even our sufferings, our sorrows, and our defeats, according to the counsel of his own will that is for his glory and for our good. He knows what is best, and we can rest in that and trust him. Fourth, that means our salvation is secure. It is as secure and as settled as the God who selected us, and we cannot be lost. So breathe easy, O oh Christian. And finally, not finally, there's more to come in the chapters, but from this chapter, this should bring us on our knees in gratitude and in worship of the God who saves, that we would exalt him above every other name as our Redeemer and our King. It is the sovereign election of God that glorifies God the most because only he has the ability to save and he has done so to rescue you and I and there are still more that he seeks to redeem. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.